trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, it's Thanksgiving Day, but I don't care. I'm so happy and I have so much to be thankful for. I'm just grateful to be uh, putting an episode out today. And I think you're going to find we're going to be talking about some things that really touch on the depths of of what we have to be grateful for. I'm joined once again by Tammy Brinkerhoff. It is National Adoption Month. And Tammy, this seems like a pretty appropriate topic for uh, for Thanksgiving, since I know that uh, you are an adoptive parent, as am I now. And um Let's let's just kind of dive right in there. Let's let's talk about what it takes and what you go through to adopt a child. For sure, this is such a good time to do this. So I did want to talk about what it go, what it looks like to adopt these days. It's not any harder than it was in the past, other than there are fewer children to adopt. And I think the first place that if you are someone looking to adopt, I think Utah. I mean, I'm considering us being in Utah. If you're in another state, you can go to their foster care. Utah foster care is where we would go here in Utah. They still have hundreds of children who are waiting for families. And the beauty of Utah foster care is they have resources. The cost is minimal. Sometimes you can get a stipend even to help you with the child. And they have they have therapy, they have counseling, they have so many resources to help you as a family integrate this child into your family and to give them the best chance that they can get at being in a successful family. So Utah Foster Care is my number one go-to and there are some other options too. If you're a family looking for infant adoption, Utah has a couple of other options. Some states don't allow private adoption, but Utah does. And the cost is much lower to go through private adoption. And that would be contacting a social worker and an attorney. And you would basically be finding the birth mom and getting yourselves together with her and then working out an adoption plan. And then the attorney would handle all the legalities of that. Um, There are some downsides to that that I don't want anyone to be surprised of. Um, Lots of times birth moms don't get any extra help when it comes to private adoption. And so um, they don't get the therapy that they need or could use sometimes and that extra support. There may be medical expenses that the family needs to pay for but you want to make sure that you get an experienced adoption attorney. Otherwise you're paying for them to study it out and learn how to do adoptions. So an experienced adoption attorney can actually take you a lot farther along with less cost and less pain. And then the best option though is adoption agencies. And Utah has a few good ones and they have some others that I personally don't really respect because um, bringing in a birth mom from another state, Utah is a state where you're subject to the rule, the laws of the state of conception. 
And so um, for an adoption agency to bring in a birth mom from another state and say they don't know who the birth father is and a few other things like that, I think it's kind of in the gray area because they do have to give the birth father an opportunity to say, yes, I agree, or no, I don't agree, or they need to know that the birth mother is considering adoption for that child. And a lot of times the birth fathers don't even know there is a child. So um, it's best to go with a reputable agency. And there are a few in Utah that I really like. And um, the social worker that I work with a lot, she we're on the same page on this. Um, and I don't know if you want me to say adoption agencies. If you want to recommend like, them, absolutely. I, I know okay. that... Uh, as you mentioned, there there are a lot of moving parts here, and it's going to vary from state to state. But yeah, please, if there's if there's some you want to recommend, I'm sure that there are people who'd be grateful to hear it. Okay, so there really are, and um, one of them is Premier Adoptions, and they're in three states: Utah, Nevada, and Arizona. And they're someone who I have known for 25 years, and they're very reputable, and they they're really focused on the families and on the birth parents, which I really like. There's also one that's called Forever Bound. I have not worked with them, but they're, they come highly recommended from my social worker friend. And um, they're great. If you find an adoption agency that brings in birth moms from other states, I would question that just because you have the opportunity to have issues come along that you wouldn't have otherwise. Then, um, sorry, I keep saying, um, that I just want to talk about the pricing too. Adoptions are kind of expensive when you work with an agency because a lot of times the agency is paying for expenses for the birth mother. Lots of times the birth mom is in a situation where she's no longer working. She's not with a family who's supporting and caring. And so there are some expenses like for her housing sometimes. There's also medical expenses. So the cost is a little bit more, well, it's quite a bit more for adoption agencies rather than private. A lot of times with private adoption, they will have the birth mom's insurance pay for the birth if possible. And some of those birth moms are on Medicaid. And, um, but with adoption agencies, their insurance doesn't cover that. So that's part of the fee. That was one of the so big questions, questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, the, I've, I've heard people say, well, we would like to, but the cost is something. Uh, my experience has been, though, that the parents who are determined to adopt a child, it may be expensive depending on the circumstance, but that's usually not uh, something that will stand in their way. In other words, if they want it bad enough, they're going to find a way. Absolutely, absolutely. And and where that determination um, is a little bit frustrating right now is with or international adoptions. I just want to put out some information on that too. Right now, international adoptions are basically closed with COVID. There are adoptions that are in the works right now that probably won't happen because the, the countries are completely shut down and they're not even working adoptions at all. There are countries that... Um, have said no we're not doing adoptions so right now if you are a family that we're looking for an adoption from china or from russia or ukraine or anywhere in europe now is probably the worst time to try to do that adoption because covid just exploded 
everything, all their infrastructure when it comes to adoption, which is so unfortunate and so sad because these kids are kids who are in orphanages. But um, domestic is your best bet right now for adoptions. And the, the most, there's, there's some online, or online resources. Adoption.com is an excellent resource for families who are trying to adopt as well as families or birth mothers who are considering adoption. They can get on there and they can look at families. They can ask questions and is a great resource for someone looking to place a child for adoption. And then there's another group called Utah Adoption Council, and that's a group of social workers that they maintain this website themselves, and they are a super resource where you can ask questions from any angle, and they are there to help, and they're, specialty, they're, they're specialists in adoption. And they want to make sure that everybody gets the resources they need or the answers to the questions that they have. So Utah Adoption Council is the last one. We're down to about one minute here, but I'd like to ask you, give me a minute and just, Tammy, talk to me about what is the greatest blessing that comes from adopting a child into your family? Well, you're asking the right question because that's what we've done. That's how we were able to become a family. We always thought we would have nine children so we could have a team, and it didn't work out that way. But we were able to adopt two amazing kids, and we got them at two days old, and we got birth families who are amazing, and we love them as, as part of our family, and we raised our kids that they have two families that love them, and it's worked out really well for us. And I think you mentioned this the very first time we talked about uh, National Adoption Month is this blesses so many people's lives. It's not a matter of, well, you're blessed and the child is blessed. There are so many people on the periphery who likewise find that uh, this is is a great source of of joy for them. So um, thanks thanks for taking the time to, uh, first of all, to celebrate National Adoption Month, but also to come on the program and talk about your experience. I mean, this this can be kind of a tender thing, but I think you've uh, you've shed a lot of light on a subject that I wish more people knew about. That's what we're trying to do is get more people aware. All right. Again, we're talking with Tammy Brinkerhoff. Tammy, have a happy Thanksgiving. Hopefully, we've uh, we've saved enough time. You can get out there and enjoy some dinner with the family. And um, I look forward to us talking again. Will do. Thanks so much. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back to the show. Hey, I'm really grateful you could uh, tune in on Thanksgiving. Hopefully this is helping your digestion and not uh, upsetting it. But I'm, uh, I'm trying to stick to topics that hopefully will be a little more uplifting, a little more palatable. We'll, we'll get back to the uh, to the heavier stuff next week. Kind of need a break every so often just, you know, to kind of keep things on an even keel. I want to thank GarageDoorProServices.com for being one of my sponsors. They are located in St. George, Utah, but serve the, the greater area, including Cedar City, Mesquite, Colorado City. Basically, that uh, that beautiful southwest corner of Utah. 
And what a what a lovely place! I you know no offense any other place I've lived, but um, I think that is still the most beautiful place that I've ever lived in my life. So uh, if you have need for installation, service, repair of garage doors, talk to my friends at Garage Door Pros. You can call them at four three five five two five twenty seven seventy three, or you can go to garagedoorproservices.com. You know the Tenth Amendment Center is uh, is I think sometimes an overlooked resource. I mean, if you know about them, you know about them. Um, a lot of folks may not have them on the tip of their tongue, but if when it comes to advancing liberty, these guys are the real deal. And they really know the Constitution inside and out. I've got a great article here from Michael Bolden on how there are four essential principles when it comes to advancing liberty. And these are simple principles, simple enough that, you know, I don't know if you're going to get any kind of discussion around the, the Thanksgiving dinner table, but these are things to keep in mind any time <clears throat> the subject is liberty. Michael Bolden says, the American Revolution was about much more than the war for independence. In fact, he says, as John, John Adams noted, the revolution was effected actually before the war commenced. A radical change in the principles, opinions, sentiments, and affection of the people, that was the real American Revolution. Huh. Now think about that in light of some of the stuff that's going on right now. Why is it that we seem less free? Well, maybe it's because we've lost our, our love of some of those principles, opinions, sentiments, and affection of the people that the founding generation carried. So Michael Bolden says, if we're going to go from the largest government in history today to a true land of the free we'll need to lean in on some of the wisdom and strategy of the founders and those old revolutionaries. So here are four essential principles to help the people set the foundation for the Constitution and liberty, whether the government wants us to or not. Okay, first one, and I agree with him, this is probably the most important, rights are not gifts from government. It's not really liberty if it requires a government-issued permission slip. When it comes to the founders and the old revolutionaries, that means we're talking about natural rights. Samuel Adams put it this way. Quote, among the natural rights of the colonists are these. First, a right to life. Secondly, to liberty. Thirdly, to property, together with the right to support and defend them in the best manner they can. These are evident branches of, rather than deductions of, from, rather, the duty of self-preservation, commonly called, called, rather, the first law of nature, end quote. Now, Michael Bolden says, in 1776, John Dickinson reminded us that our liberties do not come from charters, for these are only a declaration of pre-existing rights. And Thomas Paine noted it is a perversion of terms to say that a charter gives rights. Okay, very important thing to keep in mind. Secondly, constitutions don't enforce themselves. They never did, and they never will. Writing in support of ratification, Dickinson, who was a primary author of the Articles of Confederation, acknowledged that even the best constitution can only promote a good administration, but it cannot guarantee it. In Federalist 48, James Madison lamented that many seem to rely on the ability of documents to restrain government power, but he wrote that such a parchment barrier could never do the job on its own. Madison said, quote, A mere demarcation on parchment of the constitutional limits of the several departments is not a sufficient guard against those encroachments which lead to a tyrannical concentration of all the powers of government in the same hands. End quote. So in short, <clears throat> something else is needed to keep a government in check 
beyond pointing them to the rules they're supposed to follow. All right, third point, third principle. It's up to the people to defend their own constitution and their own liberty. And again, this is whether the government wants them to or not. Do you understand this? Government is not going to give you permission. All right, well, we're misbehaving, so you are now okay to go ahead and defend your constitution and your liberty. They're never going to do that. You have to decide when it's time. Now, he says Dickinson emphasized that enforcement of the Constitution is ultimately up to the supreme sovereignty of the people. Quote, it is their duty to watch and their right to take care that the Constitution be preserved. Or in the Roman phrase on perilous occasions, to provide that the the Republic receive no damage. End quote. And here's a quote from Thomas Jefferson to further drive this point home. A free people claim their rights as derived from the laws of nature and not as a gift of their chief magistrate. And here's a future Supreme Court justice named James Iridell, who summed it up like this during the North Carolina ratifying convention. The only resource against usurpation is the inherent right of the people to prevent its exercise. So not just a mere good idea or something to try after everything else fails. The only resource... Is the inherent right of the people to prevent its exercise against that is against usurpation. <clears throat> now here's the but, says uh, says Michael Bolden. It's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be fast to go from the largest government in history to the actual land of the free. In a 1790 letter to his friend, the Reverend Charles Clay gave us the strategy: the ground of liberty, he said, is to be gained by inches. In other words, each step forward needs to be relentlessly followed by another and another and another. Reverend Clay said we must be contented to secure what we can get from time to time and eternally press forward for what is yet to get. So there is no silver bullet to take down the empire. It will take tireless fortitude and perseverance because, as Jefferson knew, it takes time to persuade people to do even what is for their own good. Facing the monster state of today isn't going to be easy. And we won't, as Jefferson noted, go from despotism to liberty in a feather bed. But as the old saying goes, the duty is ours. Now, a lot of people seem to prefer sugarcoating how bad things are, especially at a time like this when every message we get is about choosing Team A over Team B or vice versa for the fate of everything under the sun. But he says, we prefer to be straight shooters. When it gets right down to it, Thomas Paine summed it up best. Those who who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigues of supporting it. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes. I would encourage you, if you you don't regularly visit the Tenth Amendment Center's website, this is one that would be well worth your time. I especially like the fact that uh, Mike Meharry and Michael Bolden, they're the two writers I'm most familiar with, are, are masters of putting very high-quality content into good, simple, succinct form to where you don't have to devote a whole afternoon. It's not like you're going to sit down and have to read through, you know, postgraduate-level language to try to discern what's going on in this scholarly document. They're very good at encapsulating and, and of course, using the words of the founders, drawing upon the wisdom of people who came before us, who, it turns out, actually knew what they were doing. Pretty powerful stuff. And again, this is not about, you know, trying to shore ourselves up for the next argument online so that we can own the libtards or, you know, however some people would put it. This is about bolstering your own mental, 
your own mental acuity in terms of if you were asked to defend your freedom, how would you do it? If you were asked to explain it to someone who's freedom curious, could you do it? Four simple, essential, foundational principles like this could really help you do the job. So check it out. It's in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. In fact, if you're so kind, you might even want to subscribe. Look down at the bottom of the page. When you get to the show notes, you'll see the big subscribe button. It will ask you to share your email address with me. And I will tell you straight up, I will not give, sell, or share that email address with anybody. It stays between you and me. But each day that I do the show, I will drop a copy of my show notes, complete with hyperlinks, right into your email inbox. Then you can check out the information at your leisure. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Do want to mention a couple of my other sponsors, including HSLAmmo.com, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. In fact, uh, coming up next week, I'm going to be uh, visiting with Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College. They've got a couple really cool initiatives coming up as, as part of their curriculum, and we'll be talking about those again. That'll probably be on Tuesday's program. Uh, also be talking with uh, Eric Peters once again, and so I hope you'll tune in then and, and can hear it for yourself. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about gratitude. I see a lot of unhappiness around us right now, and sometimes we just need a reminder of the things that, uh, that are right, the things that are going well. And I know that's sometimes that's that's not the easiest thing to to do when you have people you know telling well you know gas costs six bucks a gallon diesel does anyways by the way I was uh, speaking of gratitude as I was uh, driving home last night I noticed that uh, the price of gas actually had dipped below four dollars a gallon yeah it was three ninety nine I know but let's not split hairs however the price of diesel was decidedly above six dollars a gallon that's kind of sobering. But again, we'll talk about that another time. And, and it's also, you know, one thing that we have to contend with this being Thanksgiving Day. I laughingly shared the meme yesterday of this, this very stern looking guy taking a sip from his beer. And it's like that conservative uncle who's just waiting for his woke nephew to say anything at the Thanksgiving table. And, you know, there's, there's going to be some kind of strained conversations taking place. I think it's been this way for a few years now, especially since 2016. But in uh, in many homes, you know, the best hope for peace is going to be that the turkey coma sets in quickly. Now, the sense of division and resentment that has settled over our nation is permeating our relationships at just about every level. I think every one of us know individuals personally who've severed ties with family, friends or business over either perceived political differences or maybe, you know, different, uh, different responses <clears throat> to the pandemic, the vaccines, masking, and so forth. So rather than furthering those divides, I wanted to just take a moment and kind of focus on some of the things for which I feel genuine gratitude. Now, this is not me flexing to tell you how great and perfect my life is because I have challenges just like anybody else, and there's times where I'm like, you know, I'm bending under the weight of those challenges. But the antidote to feeling discouraged is to sometimes stop and consciously count your blessings 
which it turns out we, we all have these blessings around us. The problem is we sometimes just don't recognize them. So, for instance, I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for the roller coaster ride that comes along with having a family. The challenges of providing a stable home to our kids and to our grandkids has been a never-ending source of joy and alarm for both Becky and me. And like most folks, we stress over deficits of money and time, and we struggle to keep up with the mounting responsibilities of parenting, which is, of course, the only full-time job you truly cannot quit. I'm thankful to see my kids' successes in life. And it could be big or small. You know, I mean, I've, I've got, uh, you know... Kids in college, I've got one son who's about ready to graduate. I've got a daughter who's studying to, to be a nurse and will graduate in spring. And I, I'm grateful for the struggles that I see my kids go through, whether it's in their schoolwork or in their own personal growth. And I'm also really grateful that they know full well that I, as their dad, am fallible. Yet they still choose to love me. And they still seek me out for advice and support anyway. In fact, they make me appreciate just how much I owe my own parents for their selflessness. I'm also thankful for my friends, especially those who are willing to love me despite us having differences of mind or differences of opinion. See, through those differences, these friends enlarge my understanding and allow me to see the world through their eyes. Do we have to agree perfectly? The answer is no, of course not. But you wouldn't know that from, you know, a lot of the discussions online or the way a lot of, you know, the, the stories in the media are framed. Now, this may seem like a weird one, but I'm also thankful for my critics and my detractors. Why? Well, because I can count on them to hold my feet to the fire and to point out the many areas where I need improvement. Oftentimes, my friends and my family, you know, to spare my feelings, aren't going to tell me, Brian, this is where you need to, to improve. My critics have no such problem, you know, saying what's on their mind. They have helped me to examine and refine my own thoughts through our discussions and our interactions, and in turn, this has provided a lot of color and depth to my worldview. Yeah, sometimes it's not that pleasant, but again, there's, there's a side of this that I can be grateful for, and it's also gratifying to know many of those critics follow me religiously. If nothing else, I guess just to, to either hear what I've published or what I've, uh, you know, the videos I've recorded or articles I've written... They follow just to, to ensure, the, yep, he's still the jerk that I always thought he was. But they follow me. In other words, they're part of my audience, and they're loyal viewers, listeners, readers, and I do appreciate that. I'm thankful for the things in my life that require real effort. You know, that includes the difficulty that accompanies physical conditioning or the labor involved in learning. And it, it feels good when you can earn a lower readout on the bathroom scale or you can own knowledge that you've really worked hard to understand. I'm also thankful for things that remind me to be more humble and appreciate more fully what I have. It took a long time to catch on to this. And I know when you're first starting out, you know, material things are usually the ways by which we show success. But the older I get, the more I recognize the power of valuing the people in my life and how those material things really don't matter as much. <clears throat> this is not to say that, you know, you should, should live as a, a Buddhist monk and own nothing, but those material things just don't matter that much. They really don't. And when you start putting that value on the people, you're investing in something that you can carry with you not only through this life, but I believe into whatever comes next. I'm very thankful for the incredible scenic beauty of the world around me. I think, I think about you know, the time that I lived in southern Utah 
and uh, that we my parents uh, my parents took me down there for the first time. We went to Utah's Dixie back when I was about eight years old. Never forgot that sense of wonder I saw when I saw the or that I felt when I saw the hoodoos in Bryce Canyon. And that sense of wonder only has grown as I actually lived in southern Utah. I also love the beauty of southern Idaho, whether it's the farm fields, whether it's the mountains, the rugged canyons. It's really incredible. And I've also come to discover that uh, everywhere that I have lived, I've found family and friends who make those places even more precious. So I'm very grateful for the people who choose to, uh, to rub shoulders with me, and that includes a an amazing array of people from every walk of life. This includes doctors and educators and artists and business owners, farmers, ranchers, just a host of genuinely good people. And by the way, I, I'm listing, you know, some some titles here, but I want you to, it's not, they're so important and I'm well connected to everybody. I mean, just from, from top to bottom of the social strata, I know great people. And I'm very, I'm very inspired to be able to spend time with them. I've also seen how these people, again, regardless of where they are in that social strata, rally around people in in times of need and in times of disaster and help them. I've seen for myself that when there's problems within our community, there's no shortage of kindness or generosity where it really counts. As I think about uh, the things for which I'm thankful, I'm also grateful for friends and loved ones who've come and gone. Now, in their own way, each one of these friends has left an indelible mark on my life and helped to shape me into who I am today. And while they may not be here in this physical realm right now, they still live on in my heart and in my memories and remind me that the most important things we'll accomplish in our lives are best measured in the lives that we've impacted positively. Now, I'm grateful for the pain that I feel at their loss. It's legitimate pain. But that pain affirms the authenticity of my love for them, and it's also sharpened my desire to show my appreciation daily to the people around me. So these are just a few of the things for which I'm grateful. And again, I hope that doesn't sound like I'm flexing, like, wow, somebody thinks he sure lives a charmed life. The reason I share these things is because, if you notice, none of the things for which I've just expressed gratitude are dependent upon any particular political outcome. It took me a long time to realize, you know, it's, it's not a matter of, you know, being right, being on the winning side. If you want to be happy, you've got to be at peace with who you are, and you've got to be grateful for what you have, whatever it is at that moment. I don't know, have you, have you ever seen the video of people coming out of their tornado shelter after a tornado has come by, and their home is gone? It's devastated. One time I remember seeing video of this as they stepped out and, you know, the, the dad comments, well, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. But the very next words out of his mouth was, but we have what matters. We have each other. And, and you know, I think that's it. Every material possession they own was just strewn across the whole county. But looking around, the family was intact. Everybody was unharmed. Yeah, that's the stuff that matters. So I highly recommend this uh, gratitude-based exercise for anybody who wants to sail clear of the emotional doldrums in which a lot of people find themselves stranded right now. You don't have to make up stuff. You don't have to be Pollyanna. Although, you know, truth be told, Pollyanna, you could actually learn a few things from her attitude. All I know is when you start counting your blessings, usually the first reaction you'll have is you start to realize, wow, I really have a lot of these things. So maybe it is appropriate to think 
gratefully. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Going to take a moment here to uh, to talk about uh, Thanksgiving dinner. Oh yeah, you knew I couldn't resist spending a little bit of time talking about the food. But uh, the truth of the matter is, this is uh, this is a big part of uh, the Thanksgiving holiday. And I'm I'm going to tell you, I was shocked when I went to uh, to shop for a turkey this year. In fact, I was so shocked I actually ended up not buying a turkey just because it was like it was really crazily expensive. And I was thinking to myself, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can really justify this. So the, who is it? It's i uh, I'm trying to see who did the breakdown on this. This is Tyler Durden from, uh, from zerohedge.com. Thanksgiving dinner costs, uh, soar, costs soar 20% just from last year. Now, of course, the Biden administration is blaming climate change. They're blaming Putin. But listen to this breakdown. And this is not to give you indigestion, but just to, to, to make you think about it. For a Thanksgiving dinner, the average cost for a dinner for 10 people was $46.90 back in 2020. It was $53.31 last year. This year, $64.05. This is in the South, but uh, it's, it's a pretty classic example of inflation. And that Thanksgiving meal has, uh, the cost of indulgence has never been higher. General inflation slashing the purchasing power of consumers is a significant factor contributing to the increase in the average, the increase in the average cost of this year's Thanksgiving dinner. That's according to AFBF chief economist Roger Cryon. Farmers are working hard to meet growing demands for food, both here in the U.S. and globally, while at the same time facing rising prices for fuel, fertilizer, and other inputs. Now, over the past two years, the grocery bill for a traditional Thanksgiving dinner has risen by 36.6%. And here's a great graph in the article that shows these changes in a chart from Political Calculations blog. In that chart, they've ranked the cost of individual items and groupings used by the Farm Bureau for a traditional turkey dinner. From high to low, according to their 2021 cost, as you read it from left to right. And they've also accumulated the, or tallied rather, the cumulative cost of the meal with totals for each shown on the far right side of the, of the chart. Ranking the data like this lets us see that the increase in the cost of turkey is once again responsible for most of the year-over-year increase in the cost of the meal. Here we see the cost of a 16-pound bird rose by 20.7% to 28.96 in 2022. By the way, when I was looking at turkeys, and granted I was only looking in a fairly small-town grocery store, 35 bucks was about average. I know, that's, uh, that's, like, that's a chunk of change. That's more than a lot of people are going to be able to afford. The article says, This single item alone counts for more than 46% of the year-over-year increase in the total cost for the meal. Since 2020, the cost of turkey has increased by $9.57, making up 56% of the realized increase in Thanksgiving dinner ingredient costs over that time. Meanwhile, only the price of cranberries fell compared to last year, dropping by 13.8%. Oh, I know. I can hear, Bill. that's because cranberries suck. You hush. Don't you dare besmirch my beloved cranberries. 
I only eat them at Thanksgiving, but I'm not going to hear that kind of talk about them. Every other Thanksgiving dinner item increased in cost during 2022. Now, that would include things like a one-pound veggie tray of carrots and celery. That was one of the smallest year-over-year price increases, only 7.3%. But every other item's cost was up significantly, recording double-digit year-over-year price increases ranging from a low of 11.2% for sweet potatoes to a high of 69.4% for a 14-ounce package of cubed bread stuffing. Now, during the last 10 years, the cost of a traditional Thanksgiving dinner held steady within a relatively narrow range between $46.90, that was in 2020, and $50.11, that was in 2015. But thanks to the cumulative effect of inflation, celebrating Thanksgiving with a traditional turkey dinner has never been more costly for Americans. And of course, this is where this is where one of the more cynical facts comes forward, and that is the Biden administration was very quick to ascribe the blame for this record surge in the cost of the most traditional meal. Here's a quote from a news article. A USDA memo this month said turkey prices will be higher because of this year's outbreak of a highly pathogenic avian influenza, which led to the death of 8 million turkeys in 2022. But now, the USDA also said Russia's war on Ukraine and drought across the United States are other factors pushing up the price of Thanksgiving staples. USDA told Fox News Digital that both the COVID pandemic and Putin's price hike have boosted food prices around the world and said Russia's move against Ukraine cut off a critical supply of wheat, corn, barley, and other grain. Russia's war in Ukraine plus the pandemic have put pressure on food prices, according to the USDA. Now, just a reminder, you know, it was only a year ago that the St. Louis Fed offered this little beauty of a tweet suggesting that, well, maybe you should switch from turkey to tofurkey to save some cash. Yes, a turkey made out of tofu, bean curd. As of the third quarter of 2020, a hearty Thanksgiving dinner serving of turkey cost $1.42. A tofu or soybean dinner serving with the same amount of calories only costs 66 cents and provides almost twice as much protein. Now, I'm thinking, uh, what's next? Are they going to start, you know, recommending? Oh, if you went with crickets, you could save even more. Just eat those bugs and why, you'll have plenty of money. No, thanks. Now, keep in mind that a plant-based meal would be about three times larger by weight than a poultry-based meal and may either keep you at the dinner table longer or provide you with more leftovers. But uh, remind us again who was responsible for the soaring uh, poultry and soybean prices, you know, back then. Oh, yeah, spot the turkey. Here's a picture of President Biden and the turkey. Is he, is he sniffing that bird? Okay. <laughs> just, just checking. So I, I, I won't spend any more time, you know, dwelling on, on the high cost. But, uh, you know, the sticker shock you've been feeling at the grocery store, that is a real deal. And there are people who are feeling it this Thanksgiving. And, and hopefully, you know, if, if you're someone who has been struggling, hopefully you were invited to a Thanksgiving dinner. I've already seen people posting on Facebook, for instance, hey, we have plenty for dinner this year. If you are going to be alone or if you find yourself, you know, in need of a Thanksgiving dinner, please come and join us. I love to see that. To me, that's, that is evidence of the goodness that, that must exist, no matter the conditions, no matter the costs, People who have that mindset, I believe, are going to be happier, more grateful for what they have. All right, one final thought, and this is just a kind of a quick little, uh, uh, quick little wrap up. There are a lot of tall tales out there about history, 
And, and it's interesting how some of the more popular holidays that we celebrate are more often defined by the symbols of how we celebrate and less by the substance of why we celebrate them. So, for instance, July 4th, Independence Day, flags, parades, fireworks, cookouts, and picnics, that's all what comes to mind. But how many people actually celebrate the real underlying reason for which that day exists? Seceding from your legitimate government that you may create a government that will protect your rights and keep you free rather than under its thumb. Oh, don't give me that look. That's what we're celebrating. And likewise, Thanksgiving is synonymous with food and football and family, followed closely by combat shopping for Christmas. But how differently would we approach these holidays if we actually understood their historical significance and why they were observed in the first place? You know, the first thing we heard about Thanksgiving in grade school is probably that, well, it's, you know, the, the hardworking pilgrims, along with certain Indian tribes they'd befriended, celebrated their good fortune with a bounteous feast. Would it surprise you to know that that's mostly a tall tale? Richard J. Marbury, in The Great Thanksgiving Hoax, documents the pilgrims' first few years were marked by starvation, laziness, and corruption. And it's because they were practicing an early form of socialism collectivism that required all their profits and their benefits be placed into the common stock, all their meat, drink, apparel, and provisions taken out of the common stock. Able-bodied men balked at the prospect of spending their strength laboring for others who were not contributing to the colony's efforts. Rather than work in the fields, many of the colonists would steal the growing crops before they could be harvested. But those famines ended in 1623 when Governor William Bradford replaced the collectivist economic approach with a free market that allowed each household to own land and to keep or trade whatever they produced. Marbury says, suddenly instead of famine, now God gave them plenty, Bradford wrote, and the face of things was changed to the rejoicing of the hearts of many for which they blessed God. Thereafter, he wrote, any general want or famine hath not been among them, amongst them rather since to this day. Now, that sounds a little bit more like the Thanksgiving celebration, which we grew up believing. You know, Thanksgiving wasn't even a set holiday for much of the early years of American history. I mean, there were various days where the colonists held fasting and Thanksgiving throughout the year. But the first national Thanksgiving day, that wasn't until 1777, when the Continental Congress suggested that a national day be set aside to recognize the hand of divine providence in their quest for independence. And it wasn't until 1789 that President George Washington issued the proclamation designating a National Day of Thanks in November. You ought to read his proclamation. You want to see some incredible religious language? I can't imagine a politician in our time being able to say such things. This is The Brian Hyde Show.